Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How are we doing, church? Not bad. Uh, this is our first uh, weekend where the 11 a.m. is now our live stream, so welcome all of you who are watching. Uh, you're on the beach somewhere. Uh, I think the people in the room get extra credit in heaven for actually being here on a holiday weekend, but whatever. Um, but we are glad you're with us. Um, Unfiltered Radio, uh, now on FM 102.1, I think. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, that is growing like crazy is on every day of the week now, um, all over Florida and multiple times a day because people keep listening to it and finding life and freedom in Jesus. And that's because of you and what you're doing. So welcome all those people in today. So watching, listening, podcasting, wherever you're at. Um, a couple questions um, based off of my really terrible theology a second ago that you get extra credit in heaven. You don't. Uh, for being here this weekend, um, but kind of along those lines, have you ever encountered um, an individual, a person, a system, because this could be kind of multiple things, where they placed the commandments of God over treating people with compassion? And you don't need to raise your hand, but the murmurs tell me all that I, I need to know. Like, have you ever um, run into a guy, because it's almost always dudes, that take their interpretation of the text or tradition as actually an excuse to not show compassion or to mistreat somebody else. Like, and honestly, you, you have to have some humility because it, it's so easy. I'll never forget when I was in seminary, which is like post-grad for people who do this. And I, I just felt like way on the outside where I really, and I'm not overstating this, I really second guess like, God, is this what you have for my life? I just don't feel like I'm that guy. And, and I say this with humility because I know all of this is in me too, but it just got so weird. Like, I'll just tell you, seminary students are the weirdest people in the world. Like, we just hired another seminary student and we, like, the background checks for that are so robust. Just go, are you weird? Like... Because the, and, and one of the things that happens in seminary is you, a bunch of people, and, and a lot of times it's guys, it's dudes, get so obsessed with what that they forget why the text was written in the first place. They get so obsessed with the what behind a theological system, they completely lose sight of why it was created in the first place. And isn't this true? I mean, it is so easy. I mean, Jesus said it. It is so easy to, to pick the speck out of somebody else's eye to use his language and forget about the freaking two by four in your own eye, right? And that, Jesus didn't say that. That's my paraphrase um, of what Jesus said. Or the log truck in your own eye. It's so easy to do. And here's the thing as you study the gospels, which to me, always just moves me. And you look at the life of Jesus. He loved everybody. He loved all people. But he was the harshest. He was in your face. He, he was uncomfortably angry at times with people who used religion and used God like that. They were not his people. And then you would see these or hear these stories of Jesus preaching and the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the pimps were all in the front row and they liked Jesus and Jesus liked them. But man, if you were in the religious system and you used religion or text or tradition to mistreat or hurt somebody else, you heard from Jesus every single time. 
So we're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. But we're in this series called You Are Not Far, and we're really going through the Gospel of John, which is a whole book. Uh, You probably know this, but the Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. And so this was written by John when he wrote it. He didn't know it was a gospel. He was just, this is the life of Jesus. This is what I experienced. This is what happened. And the world needs to know about it. And so as we journey with Jesus through the book of John and through the writings of John, who's really close to Jesus, here's what you discover that is so important. John did not begin to follow Jesus because of faith. John began to follow Jesus because of what he saw and what he heard. And there's a big difference. And we looked at this last week, but some of you grew up in a tradition or an environment or a Sunday school class. And kind of the answer to every question you had was, you just need to have faith. If you grew up in the South, it was, you just need to have faith, brother. Or you just need to have, you just need to believe. You just need to trust more. And you're like, what? But I have questions. I don't know if I believe, you can't just believe something. I mean, there's a journey to investigating and figure something, something out, but you don't just decide to believe something. It's always based on evidence. And here's the good news, despite maybe what you were told. That's actually what Jesus invites us into. And it's what John wrote about in terms of his journey of following Jesus. John didn't get to a place to just believe and then hoped it worked out. It was a long series of evidence and learning and listening and watching and then eventually believing and then not believing and then getting more evidence and believing again until eventually he arrived at the place to trust that Jesus was actually his Lord and Messiah. And it helped when he rose from the dead to go, I'm just going to follow that guy. And everything changed for John. In fact, here's what John said and what John wrote in his book in 1 John 1, 1, that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, talking about Jesus, which we've seen with our own eyes. John's like, this isn't ethereal. I'm telling you, we hung out with the guy, which we have looked at and our hands have actually touched. And then I think John didn't quite know how to describe Jesus like us, but he says this, and the life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it. And then verse three, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard. And just real quick plug, because we have so many who are in this place online and in the house where you're curious, you're investigating, you walked away from faith, you're trying to get it back, you're trying to see if you even have any. Well, like one of the best places to start is Starting Point, which launches on July 10th, and we'll talk about it at the end of the service. But that's an environment designed for people to go, I was told just have faith and just believe, and Jesus and John is going, no, no, it's way bigger than that, and it's way better than that. God has done something, God has left evidence, God has left signs to lead you to a place to hopefully believe that Jesus is actually who he says he is. And so in that environment starting point, we talk about that. We let people just with their curiosity go, okay, this is what I don't understand. And we're not just going to give you all the answers, but journey with the fact that there is so much that guys like John have left us to lead us to the place to maybe reconsider or consider Jesus for the first time. John said this, because here's the thing about John. John was not content to write his gospel and just tell us what happened. John's whole agenda was to tell us why it happened. And he said this toward the end of that book in John 20, verse 31. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. All my cards on the table, John's like, that's where I'm hoping you get to once you experience what I've experienced. And I'm just telling you, John would say, it was good enough for me I think it might be good enough for you. And then he says, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so John sits down toward the end of his life. He's old. 
It most likely this is transcribed for him, probably can't see well. He's the last probably living apostle. He has seen so much carnage, so much death. There is so many questions that he doesn't have answers to, but he has watched and seen Jesus do some extraordinary things. And he sits down to write about these seven miracles. But they weren't just miracles. They were actually signs that pointed to evidence that really revealed who Jesus was. Ultimately, Jesus' identity and what he came to planet Earth to offer. They weren't just random acts of kindness, which is generally what we think of the miracles of Jesus. Jesus was just walking around as this guy that clothed those who didn't have any clothes, fed the hungry. He was a healthcare dispensing machine to people who, like, who had physical ailments. I mean, it was just all about feeding, clothing, um, healing, and yet those were all byproducts of what Jesus was actually doing which was providing evidence and signs. This is why John uses the word sign and not miracle. Signs that something new was here, that God was doing something new on planet Earth through Jesus that would change everything. And so last week we looked at one of the most familiar miracles that um, depending on your background, um, we've explained it away as Welch's grape juice and that's fine, but the, the turning of the water into wine in the Cana of Galilee, and if you wanna go with that narrative, that's fine. Um, it was wine. I don't know how many proof, but it was wine. Um, Jesus turns water into wine. It's an incredible miracle, but it wasn't just about the miracle. Jesus was pointing to something bigger. And then right after that, in Cana of Galilee, and, and if you're following along in our 21-day journey through John reading with us, which is, I'd highly recommend, you've already read about this, but and this is a story I'm going to skip. There was a boy that was dying, and Jesus heals this boy without even going to his house, without even seeing him. He just does it remote. And then right after those two miracles, and here's what I love about those two miracles real quick. Jesus enters into celebration at a wedding and then immediately enters into somebody's suffering. And then from there, he goes from Canaan of Galilee and it says that he actually goes south to Jerusalem. The text says he goes up. And the reason for that is because Jerusalem was actually elevated. So anytime you actually go into the city, you're going up. But Jesus leaves Canaan of Galilee and then he heads toward this next miracle. And in your Bible, it might just say this. If you've got a Bible, if you're um, tracking on in the app, it'll just say this healing on the Sabbath. And so John records this, and here's what he says in John chapter 5, verse 1, that sometime later, right after the water into wine, uh, the open bar that went bad at the wedding, and then the dying boy who was healed from a distance, it says this, John 5, 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which is actually south, to one of the festivals. In verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called um, Bethesda, and which is, it's really interesting, he uses is and not was. Because when John writes this, this thing was still at some level operational. People still knew about it, which is one of the many evidences of why this was written within 70 years. If you're told by a freshman English professor, no way that it could be written within 70 years, it was written after 100 years, here's the reason they tell you that. Without any real um, empirical evidence or data, they know how long it takes for myth or fairy tale to develop. It takes about 100 years. All of the eyewitnesses have to die off. So they assume that's when it was written. The evidence is overwhelming that it was written within 70 years. The fact that they don't even reference the destruction of Jerusalem is major evidence it was written within 70 years. When John's writing this, he's going, hey, you know that pool? You, you guys are all familiar? Like that pool that everybody's familiar with, that's where this story takes place because John wrote this during the same generation that all of it happened. And he says this um, at the end of the verse, it was surrounded by five covered colonnades in verse three here, a great number, a whole lot of people, a bunch of disabled used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, real quick, I, 
I can't really paint for you what a horrific situation and location this was. This is the worst of the worst with every kind of ailment, every kind of sickness, every kind of disease, every kind of like thing that you could imagine. And they're all huddled there. Most likely there was attendants that would go into these crowds of people waiting to get in the pool and they would just haul away the dead because that was an everyday occurrence. And here's the thing in that culture. If you were not wealthy, upper middle class, you had no access to doctors at all. So you had really no options. And if you were wealthy and had doctors, doctors were weird. Um, It was just archaic, obviously. Doctors, this is just one little side note, they couldn't even examine a dead body according to kind of their their customs and what they knew. And so they would rush, doctors would rush to bodies that were dying to try to examine them real quick before they died. They They didn't examine, they didn't autopsy anything. So there was very little information. There was very little at your disposal. So if you were really sick and you didn't have the means that, that the upper middle class had, you were basically left to the temple and to superstition. You were hoping God might do something. You were hoping that the gods might do something. You were hoping that you could maybe appease God with a sacrifice and something was gonna change. And you would basically buy into anything that would give you hope that maybe things could be different. And so one of the superstitions was this pool that they believed would be touched by an angel and would like stir the waters. And then once the angel stirred the waters and they saw that happening, the first person there would be healed. Like, can you imagine that scene? And you have a bunch of people who can't really move. You have people that are there that are are in excruciating pain. And so it's kind of like everybody for himself to try to get into this pool. Uh, Archaeologists found later that it was probably fed by a spring or a a reservoir. So really what they were seeing most likely was a spring bubbling up. But they just turned that into a story of an angel touching the water. Because when you are desperate, sometimes you'll believe anything. And so they would see this and they would just like every man for himself to get to this spring, to this pool, to somehow be healed. And so verse five, it says in the text, and and John recorded it, one who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, most of his life, can't walk, he's desperate, somehow he gets down there and has his mat but it's almost impossible for him to actually get to the pool and to beat somebody else. So you can imagine he's got a ton of anger. Like uh, even the, I mean, most of the time, I'm sure he's not even close. There's probably a few days he, he somehow wrestled his way down to the riverbank and then Frank comes out of nowhere and gets in the pool right in front of him. And like, there had to be so much anger of like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't, I can't walk. I can't get to the pool. I've been waiting day after day, year after year. I can't even get there. And you have all of these blind and lame and paralyzed. And you can't imagine the sight. Nobody who is healthy would go to this place. Nobody who, like, you know, had any semblance of good health would come near this place. And here's what's really interesting to me. Jesus willfully and intentionally enters this place with these people. I'm just telling you, nobody else would do that. And this guy who had been an invalid for 38 years, verse 6, when he saw Jesus Or when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, decided to do something. And real quick, because like last week with the water turning into wine, it wasn't just about a miracle. It wasn't about Jesus keeping the open bar open. It was about Jesus providing a sign that was going to point to God doing something new in the world. And this would be a sign that would give evidence and point to who Jesus really was and what he was actually coming to offer and what he was coming to rearrange about people's perspectives around God. 
And so this is the point where he leans down really where nobody else could hear. And he asked this really odd question, a question that kind of seems insensitive and like, I I don't know, that, that doesn't really make any sense. And Jesus leans down out of earshot of anybody else. And he asked this guy who had been an invalid for 38 years, do you want to get well? He's like, what do you think? I can't get in the water. I can't, every time I get close, this idiot over here gets in ahead of me. Like, it is dog eat dog. Like, I, I, yes, I want to be. Why do you think I'm here believing that some angel is stirring the waters? I know it sounds a little crazy to me, but I'll do anything to get better. So, yes, I want to get well. It's a really good question from Jesus. Because here's the reality, and this, this relates to us too. Not everybody wants to get well. It was a really good question. And here's the thing, because I don't know what theology that you were sold or somebody handed off to you. Like, there is not the promise of full and complete healing this side of heaven. I've prayed for people and I've prayed for, for personal and specific circumstances to get better, for God to heal it, for God to make it right. And God just said a real loving no to those requests from time to time. The promise is that, and Jesus said this, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but I've overcome it, and one day you're going to fully realize it, and so I haven't promised you health, wealth, and prosperity. I've promised that when you do go through inevitable trouble, I will be with you, and Jesus is enough. And one day, just so you know, there's more coming. I'm going to wipe away every tear. I'm going to handle every injustice. I'm going to right every wrong, and King Jesus is going to reign forever. That's my promise to you. But with that said, there is a lot of healing still available this side of heaven. I did a message um, probably two years ago where I talked about this dynamic because I've seen this in so many people over the years where you'll see two people in very similar circumstances and one will just kind of live and get comfortable in dysfunction and somebody else will find healing and find freedom. And sometimes the difference is just wanting it. And I'll just tell you this and you can take it or leave it. Generally to find healing, whether this is relational healing and reconciliation, whether this is from an addiction, whether this is from shame or guilt that you're carrying from your past, it might even be physical where there are things that are available to you in 2022 and as an image bearer in the in the image of God, the Imago Dei, you should pursue those. You should take care of what God has given you. So whatever that healing looks like, one of the things that is almost always true is that that healing will require extreme measures. And sometimes it's easier to stay sick than it is to pursue healing. And sometimes it's more comfortable to stay in your dysfunction than to encounter the uncomfortability of healing. Because I'm telling you, when you want to move toward God doing something incredible, God reconciling, God healing, God releasing you from the shackles of your past, God moving you into that place that he has for you, it will not happen without you moving in the direction to go, I will do whatever it takes. I will have whatever conversation it takes. I will give up whatever it takes. I'll get into whatever counseling that I need. I'll go back and deal with whatever is required. And God is maybe saying to you, listen, I'm willing to heal you, but you got to want it. And if you are not wanting it, and if you're not willing to take an extreme step or an extreme like measure of faith, then God, this is so important, God will never force his will on you. God will never force his way on you. 
And so healing is never promised. But listen, make no mistake, God is still healing, restoring, redeeming, and reconciling. And it may be available to you, but the question to you is, do you want it? And then Jesus leans down to this guy. And he says with, in a way that nobody else could hear, I think whispers to him. I love this moment. Yo, get up. Get up. No, you, you, get up. In the Greek, wake up, rise up, come to life. And let me, just, let me just kind of bring to the surface the uncomfortability of this moment too. Jesus is around a lot of other sick people. I mean, can you imagine that whole thing of, of Jesus making his way through the crowd? Like, excuse me, excuse, could you just excuse me? I'm trying to get there. Can you just, I'll just like, excuse me. And then he gets to this guy, has a whole conversation, heals him, as we're going to see. And then Jesus is like, excuse me. Sorry, excuse me. Can I just, and he goes by, I I don't know, hundreds of other people who are like, hey, yo, we're looking for the same thing. And yet Jesus decides to, to stop for this guy. And he says to him, come to life, rise up, wake up. And then this is so important. What he does next makes this more than just a miracle. It makes it a sign. Jesus is doing something. And it says, and John records it, pick up your mat and walk. Which again, we don't really even think about that. Just think about it for just one second. For 38 years, this guy could not walk. Yesterday, he was not walking. That morning, he was not walking. Now he is walking, throwing his yoga mat over his shoulder and just going out of the crowd. Can you imagine that? Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked his mat up and he walked. And then he turns around and Jesus is gone, disappeared. Doesn't know his name, doesn't know who healed him. And yet in this moment, Jesus has just whacked a hornet's nest because he is doing something. This is not by accident. Jesus is precise and strategic in everything that he does. And he whacked a hornet's nest because... The Sabbath, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath, meaning the Jewish officials see him walking, this guy, and carrying his yoga mat back out of the crowd. And they're like the little like meter patrol guys, like walking around, I would imagine, like just looking for people who are making Sabbath violations. And so, and here's the thing that's crazy to me. They're not even awed by the fact that the guy couldn't walk for 38 years and now he's walking. They're just like, hey, yo, you can't have a yoga mat on your shoulder and carry it out of the crowd. That's a violation of the Sabbath. And so you're going to get dinged for that. I'm sorry. Like that, that's, that's where the Pharisees, the religious leaders are at. And so it was Sabbath, verse 10, um, it says, so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and the law, n- no mention of the fact that, hey, by the way, it is cool that you're walking now. No, just it's the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. And actually it didn't. Their tradition did. So just real quick to give you a little backstory, they, they had this idea that basically became mythology that when Moses went up with the Ten Commandments and came down with those Ten Commandments etched in stone, that he also had an oral set of commandments. 
And those oral commandments basically became 633 Old Testament laws and Old Testament covenant that then created all of these different categories. And so there were 39 categories, not 39 laws, 39 just categories of laws of what you couldn't do or work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? These, these are the equivalent of the guys that write tax code. Like 39 categories. And nobody laughed at that at nine, and I thought it was funny. Like... <laughs> 39 categories of things you could, and so one of them was you couldn't carry a load from one place to another. And so these guys were obsessed with not the fact that he was healed, not, hey, how did that happen? But just the fact that he was carrying a mat. But here's what the law actually said. Because what they violated was the application that they had made up from an oral law that became mythology. It did not violate the commandments. The commandment was remember the Sabbath, Exodus 28, and make sure you keep it holy. And the point was, take a break from labor, not from love. Take a break from your profession, not compassion. You have missed the intent of the law. See, this is what happens, and some of you have experienced it. This is what happens when religious people forget or they ignore the why behind the what. And I could give so many examples of this. And, and listen, all of us are susceptible. All of us can have a two by four in our eye. All of us have to stop with humility and evaluate ourselves. But this happens so often. And it happens with followers of Jesus who just miss the intent of the law. I'll give you one example over the last two years where there, there was so much in regard to racial healing and racial reconciliation. And, and one of the things that I think bothered me so much about Jesus followers is, is not that we have all kinds of varying opinions. You have no idea how diverse our church is growing. And I, I mean just in terms of like ideologies and, and, and complexities of things and how to apply stuff and backgrounds and education and socioeconomic status, which means there's a lot of Jesus followers that think differently. I don't know if anybody has a category for that, but it's a thing. Jesus followers who love Jesus, who you will see in heaven, think differently. And one of the things over the last couple of years around the area of racial healing is, is certain individuals where, I, and I can get like, well, I don't really understand certain things. I don't get that, and I don't get that point of view, and, I don't, and all of that is fine. But they would literally take theology or theological systems or rip verses out of context as an excuse to feel good about themselves for not empathizing or entering into the pain of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus would call that sin. Hey, you don't have to agree with somebody to love somebody. You don't have to understand something to empathize with somebody. You do not have to see things the same way in order to move in and do what Paul wrote about in the New Testament, which is to carry their burden and carry their load. And listen, church, this is the way forward in this next part of this cultural moment and why I think we and you and what you are doing through this church have an incredible opportunity to impact your city, your neighborhood, and your culture because there's not a lot of Jesus followers doing that. There's a brand of Christianity that gets in an echo chamber bubble and doesn't realize there's a lot of other brothers and sisters in Christ that we are going to 
to spend forever with and I may not understand them, but I will sure as heck empathize with them and enter into their pain and love them because when I get to heaven, I will not be accountable for whether I'm right. I will be accountable for how I loved other image bearers who are made in the image of God. Let me put it a different way. This is what happens when defending a theological system. This is what happens when defending an ideology. This is what happens when defending a political agenda. This is what happens when defending party loyalty takes precedence over the people that these claim to serve. And it is so difficult to see. And it is so difficult to see in the mirror. And the reason I know that is because when I say all those things, a bunch of you agree and you're thinking about somebody else that needs to hear it. Well, if I could just send this to my brother-in-law who would low-key send it to my mother-in-law, that's exactly what she needs to hear. Like, you're absolutely right. You're thinking about a whole other group of people. You're thinking about a segment of our nation. You're thinking about another, what, like, you're always thinking about somebody else. And Jesus would go, no, no, I'm talking to you. Talking to me. You have to be careful we have to be honest. Listen, you should have ideologies and you, you should have a, a take on politics and you should be involved and, and you should have a theological system. But I'm telling you, all of those, they pale in comparison to following Jesus and making the filter for your life, his kingdom, and loving the way that he loved you. All of those things are a, a distant second. And listen, as, as followers of Jesus, we need to start getting comfortable with this. There's all kinds of things you don't agree with. There's things happening right now all over the news and, and like you can make debates on every side, but there are followers of Jesus who love Jesus, who get the complexity, who have different views. And listen, more than anything else, you are called to love them, to respond the way that Christ has responded to you. Can I just go a step further and just say this? Like if you're a follower of Jesus that is berating people you don't agree with online, specifically other followers of Jesus, if you are harsh, if you constantly create an us and them, would you please not call yourself a Christian and would you please never drop the name of Centerpoint Church because I don't want to be associated with your brand of Christianity. <laughs> to give you one more quote, when the best for people, when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to you, you're at odds with God. Because John said it, he couldn't have been more clear. God so loved the world, all people, that he gave his one and only son. I want you to give up your life, your rights, you being right, what you think you deserve, the fact that you think they're an idiot. And I want you to love them the way that I loved you. And if anything gets in the way of loving somebody else, this is Jesus, it's sin. And so back to the story. The leaders insist, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your yoga mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, I love this, pick up your mat and walk. So he's like, I don't know his name still, but I'm just telling you, I'm going to go with that guy. I'm going to listen to that guy. I'm going to obey that guy. Because he, I'm walking around. All you've done is shamed me. You have guilted me. And you have built a theological system that has caused me to live my entire life thinking I was getting what I deserved. 
And by the way, even if I am, the guy would probably say, this guy just gave me, if that's true, exactly what I don't deserve. So I'll follow him. I gotta figure out his name. I don't know who it was, but I'm gonna follow whoever the nameless guy, whoever John Doe is that made me walk, I'm gonna follow him. So they asked him, verse 12, who's the fellow who told you to pick up the mat and walk? Because he's like, I, again, I don't know his name. Basically, they're asking, hey, who's the man, the religious leaders, who's the man that defies the law and defiles the Sabbath? We, like, we're taking notes and we need to find him because it's a violation. And the man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. And then later, verse 14, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. He's a surprise to the guy, like out of nowhere. This is sometime later, he's at the temple. First time in his life, probably he can go to the temple. So he's like, I should do that. I'm gonna give thanks to God. It's amazing, I can walk. Temple's a good place to go. Sees Jesus, he's like, there you are. Like, what's, who are you? What's your name? This is a big deal. And Jesus tells him his name. And then what Jesus does next is so funny. And it's probably, you've, if you've heard this passage, it's probably never been portrayed to you as funny. Uh, this sounds so arrogant when I say it, but it's most of the time mi- completely misinterpreted and taken out of context because Jesus basically kind of twists the knife at the religious leaders or the Pharisees and he jokes with this guy and, and here's what he says next because Jesus knows he's been accused of sinning. And so he smiles at this guy and says, hey, hey guy, stop sinning. Yo, you just stop sinning. Stop sinning. Better stop carrying that mat around, you sinner. Like that, that's basically what it is because that, that's the, the violation. Not, you know, anything related with the fact that he couldn't walk anymore. He picked up his mat and left. I mean, here's the thing about this guy. Not only had he not sinned in 38 years, he had done nothing for 38 years. Like he couldn't even walk. And so there Jesus, he's like, stop sinning or, or something worse might happen to you. Implication, the religious leaders might punish you. All the patrol officers have their pads out and they saw you and you brought your mat back and you can't do that. It's a violation of one of the 39 categories of the oral law that they turned into tradition. And so like you better stop sinning because the religious leaders, they're going to get you. This is so important. I want to stop one more second then I'll finish. Because it's so important for some of you who have experienced a lot of religious trauma, which is a thing and you've been hurt by religious leaders to the point that it's made it hard to connect with the scriptures or even some of what you hear about the message and life of Jesus because it's gotten so overshadowed by your trauma and a religious system that betrayed you. And what you have to know is that in a lot of cases, maybe the religious system that you were given or that you were under or that caused so much shame and so much guilt to the fact that you just wanted to quit, that religious system in many cases is at odds with the actual message and life of Jesus. And what you will find is, as you get to really know Jesus, and for some of you, the obstacle to really get to know Jesus is that trauma that's gotten in the way. So you interpret the scriptures and you interpret the life of Jesus through this jacked up system that you were handed down. But as you get to know who Jesus actually is, just mark it down, you will lose your fear of religion. Now, I'll tell you by experience, you will lose your fear of religious people. 
Because when you choose to follow Jesus, religion will lose its grip on you. And following Jesus will become more important than everything else. It'll become more important than who disagrees with you or agrees with you. It'll become more important than who you tick off. It'll become more important than whatever other noise or echo chamber is screaming at you. It becomes about following Jesus and abandoning everything else to latch a hold of the good news that is found through him and what he's done on your behalf. And so the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Like he's, he's got the mat over his shoulder. He's kind of made his way through the temple, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, I love this, Jesus said to him, said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, by the way, and I too am working. By the way, um, like God doesn't take a day off, neither do I. And so I'm just going to do this anyway, because you guys have completely misinterpreted the law. So if God the Father does this, I'm going to do it too, because like father, like son. Sorry. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. And not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, yep. It's exactly what he was doing. And this is the question, because this is what the religious leaders always had a problem with. It wasn't so much that he did miracles or the signs or the other things related to that. It was over and over again confronting Jesus going, who do you think you are? Like, that is the question for you. Who do you think you are? Who is Jesus? What is he doing? What is he offering? Because Jesus leaves no middle ground. Either he is crazy and makes ridiculous claims, like I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or he actually is who he says he is. So in this moment, Jesus is going, okay, you guys have got the questions right. Who am I? Very truly, I tell you, the son Talking about me, Jesus can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father, this is, don't miss this. Whatever's been done to you in the name of God, religion, the thing that you grew up with, the individual who traumatized you, abused you, the junk that was done because somebody else had guilt that they decided to put onto you, whatever your experience is, like this is what Jesus is inviting us into. That whatever the father does, the son does also. Meaning in this moment, Jesus is going, you want to know what God's really like? Watch me. You want, you want to know what God really says about that thing? Listen to me. You want to know what God would actually do in that situation? How he would actually respond to those people? How, would he, how he would actually react? I want you to follow me. One of my favorite moments is Jesus in the Jordan River and he comes up out and this is weird if you didn't grow up in church, but there's this voice that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And kind of my paraphrase is this, is God the Father, as Jesus is starting his earthly ministry going, if you wanna know what God is like, watch my boy. And he'll tell you everything that you need to know. And then he concludes the conversation with this in John 5, 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus is saying. And yet, verse 40, you refuse to come to me to have life. Like you, you opt for the written over the living. Jesus is like, you guys are obsessed 
with an interpretation that you're missing a living demonstration. And once upon a time, you had an excuse because it was fuzzy and it was gray and it was Old Testament system and it was the Old Covenant and, and they were waiting for God to do something new and so the whole thing was confusing. You had an excuse, but not anymore. The word has become flesh. God in a body. You wanna know what God says? Listen to him. If you wanna know how God would act, watch him. If you wanna know what God would do, follow Jesus, follow me. No longer is there any excuse because God caught God God condescended into human flesh and Jesus would say, I'm standing right in front of you. The guessing is over. Watch me. Listen to me. Follow me. I am a living commentary on everything that was written. Hey, guys, it pointed to me. The Savior's here. The Messiah's here. The new system is here. A new movement is here. A new way to relate to God is here. This is your sign standing right in front of you that God has done something different and new in the world. Follow me. And see, this is why the gospels are so important. And why if you're trying to figure it out or maybe you've been following forever, but your faith has never been really anchored to anything substantial and why you need this series, we need this series together. The gospels are so important because there's conflicting ideologies everywhere, right? Conflicting political agendas everywhere. Conflicting religious systems everywhere. And God showed up to make it simple. He showed up. He spoke up. He was really clear that the people around you must take priority over the potentially flawed view you carry with you. Come on, isn't it true? Like there's things that I thought I was so right about that five years later, I realized I was so wrong. There's theology that I thought I had nailed down as a seminary student. You wouldn't believe how much I knew about God in seminary only to find out I know half of what I thought I knew. Like all of us, I think, have enough humility to go, like there's stuff we're wrong about. That, that means that your potentially flawed view should never lead the way in terms of how you view life, your lens for life, because the person around you has to take priority of a flawed view that you might change in five years. Because isn't it true? We don't always know what to believe with certain things. We don't always know who to believe with certain things. Jesus made it terrifyingly clear. You almost always know what love demands of you. So let me ask you two really clarifying, annoying, disturbing, you don't have to take them serious questions and then we'll be done. But I just wanna leave us with this. Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? Because if so, you're at odds with God. The system has changed. No longer do you bring a bull and a goat and go into the Holy of Holies with, or a priest or, or sacrifice at the temple and go, God, we're good. God, we're good. I offered my sacrifices. I went to the temple. I memorized the Torah. God, we're good. Jesus comes in the New Testament, man. He just changes the game. It's easier to understand. It's much harder to live up to. If you want to know where you're at in relationship with God, look at the relationships to your right and your left, in front of you and behind you, and that will tell you everything about where you're at in relationship with God. Does your, second question, does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people that God loves? Because if so, it's the wrong version. And John, who knew Jesus, 
comes to planet Earth and says, the best I could describe him is this way. And by the way, if you're going to err, err on the side of love, you will not stand before God and be held accountable to whether you are right. You'll be held accountable to how well you loved. John, who said the best I could describe it, God is love. And he came to rescue the world. God showed up and then he demonstrated how it's done, how we're supposed to love one another around us. And then he punctuated all of it by dying on a cross for all of the times that we don't get it right. And he says to you, not based on, hey, just just believe this, just have faith. Based on the fact that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life in history, no secular historian doubts that any longer. Nor do they doubt the fact that he died a death via Roman crucifixion. And then the, the evidence is overwhelming historically, walked out of a grave alive. And it punctuated everything he said about his life. That if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you are not gonna find relationship with God anywhere else. You will not find it in a religion. You will not find it in a denomination. You will not find it in a class. You will not find it by doing enough good things. There's no amount of good stuff that can outweigh where you've already went off the rails. And all of us are in that category. We are all equally in a place where we do not live perfect lives and we need a savior. And he says, if you would place your faith and trust in me in the fact that on the cross, I died for your sin, past, present, and future. And just simply, it's so simple, we stumble over it. Say, I believe. Jesus, I trust you as my savior. I believe that you lived the perfect life. You died for my sin. You rose from the grave. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to forgive me of sin. The scripture says in that moment, you become a son and daughter of God. In that moment, God rescues you and saves you. And I say this, I've said this a thousand times. But even if you screw up, the remaining part of your life and you just face plant in every way imaginable. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're gonna stand before your heavenly father, perfect, whole, complete, and holy because it was always on the basis of what he did and his performance, not yours. It's called the good news, the gospel. And so wherever you are, Jesus' invitation is, to you is, I want you to follow me. In this series, we're tracking along with this 21-day prayer uh, journey. We're in day seven. You can pick up wherever you want. But for some of you, this, these few weeks are going to change your eternity forever. For some of you, this is going to anchor the message of Jesus in your heart, even though you, you would say like me, I already believe, but it's not founded on much. It's going to change some things forever for some of you. And so I'd love for you to journey with us. You can go to the YouVersion app. You can go to our social accounts. The link is there, places like Instagram. But go to YouVersion, just search that title. You'll see that image. And right there, there'll be a devotional and a reading every single day. But as we close, I didn't even do this first service, um, but I just feel led to do it right now. If you would stand with me and those of you who are on radio, if you're able to enter into this moment right now and it's not weird, those of you who are podcasting, watching, this is is as much to you as it is to anybody else. But I wanna give some who I know we're only in week two, but already this is a moment. where the spirit of God's doing something and, and it's your moment to respond. So if you would, would you bow your heads, close your eyes, just out of respect, people around you. I know that's weird if you didn't grow up in, in the church thing, but I just, I wanna allow God to move in this moment. And if you would say, this is the moment where I believe, not just because I'm having faith in faith or believing because I need to muster up more belief. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose again. And right now I'm not trusting myself. I'm trusting what he did for me. You just pray this prayer after me and it's not the prayer that saves you. It's your declaration of trust. But in your own heart and own mind, wherever you are, would you just pray this? Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. 
I believe you rose again. And right now, I'm trusting you and you alone to save me, to forgive me. And the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord in that way, unequivocally, will be saved, will be rescued. So that's you with nobody looking around. Would you just lift up your hand in this moment with no shame? I'm not going to do anything weird. I just, I just want to recognize what the Spirit of God is doing in here in this moment. And get it up real high because it's hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep it up for one second. Hands all over the auditorium. There's an usher who's going to put a card in your hand. You don't have to do anything with that. You can hide it, whatever. But if you want to, we'd love to give you more information about this journey. And that's our way of doing this. And so just one more time, there's hands all over the auditorium. If you, if you would say, this is my moment to place my faith and trust in Christ. I think this is the greatest moment of your life. Just keep your hand up nice and high for just a second. And we'd love to put that card in your hand. And then you choose what you want to do. But what I want you to know is I'm praying for you in this new journey and what God is initiating in this moment. So one more time, if that was you. If you're online, just text Centerpoint to 94,000. We'd love to send you a link about your decision. One more time. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing. Move and work in this moment. We give you the glory for what you've been doing for 2,000 years. And we pray this and ask this in the incredible name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.